this is the Seattle. Supplemental 12. Second Sons. Welcome back to something I recognize has become too rare these days. An on-time episode of the Siecla. I know, I know. But I think you're in good hands for the next few months anyway. Not only am I making good progress on episode 29, but I've got several interview episodes in the can, including this one today. You might remember episode 26, Monsieur which retold the story of Louis XVIII's reign from the perspective of his younger brother, the future king Charles X, who was then often referred to by an unusual honorific, Monsieur. That was how the French court addressed the younger brother of the king, should one exist. And not only did Charles spend many years as Monsieur, but before the Revolution, so did Louis XVIII, when he was merely the younger brother of the unfortunate king Louis XVI. Well, As it happens, Professor Jonathan Spangler, a senior lecturer in early modern history at Manchester Metropolitan University in England, has been studying the French institution of Monsieur for years, and two months ago, he published a new book titled Monsieur, Second Sons in the Monarchy of France, 1550-1800. I reached out to Professor Spangler as soon as I saw his book announcement, and was thrilled when he agreed to come on the show. What follows is our conversation, which covers both the experience of Louis and Charles as Monsieur, but also the history of Messieurs dating back to the 16th century. Be sure to visit thesiecle.com slash supplemental12 for a link to purchase Professor Spangler's book, as well as for a full transcript of our conversation with links and pictures. Now, here's the interview. Jonathan Spangler, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. It's great to be part of your show. Uh, Yes, uh, we're excited to learn a little bit more about uh, the history of Monsieur. Yes. Talk a little bit to start about, uh, I guess, your research interests in general and how you got interested in this this peculiar French institution. Yeah, it is a very peculiar institution. There is no other monarchy in Europe in the early modern or, or modern era that has a specific name for its second son. Sometimes we jokingly call um, the second son, even in today's monarchy in Britain, the, the, the spare. And so people call it the heir and the spare, the extra person needed in case um, of a tragedy and the first son dies, you need to have someone else to take over the throne. Um, in France, this person was called Monsieur, starting from the end of the 16th century and all the way up until the beginning of the 19th century, um, which is the period that you're, of course, focusing on. My own research background really starts from the court of Louis XIV. I've always been much more interested in European history more generally, not French. But when it came to choose a PhD topic, French was my working language, and so it made sense to look there. I'm more interested in the court than the king himself. And so I've always been interested in people who surround the Sun King, uh, people who are interacting with the king rather than the king himself. And so I was kind of drawn to the role of the younger brother. So most of my research at first focused on Philippe d'Orléans, who has become famous recently because of the television show Versailles. Out of that, then, a project grew where I thought I would look at four of the boys who are are always raised in in the shadow of their older brother, just in case they're needed. And in three of the four cases, they never were. And so it's, it's always difficult to kind of struggle and find out where your place is in society. This is a, an interesting institution. I think a lot of people who don't closely study monarchies and uh, different forms of government 
have this idea that in a monarchy, well, it's sort of absolute. The king is the decider and he makes all the decisions. But of course, even though it's not a democracy like we think of it, there's lots of other people around the king who have influence on policy and, and what's happening. That's right. A lot of the interesting changes that have been happening since the 1990s really has been a, a kind of flourishing of this new field called court studies. And one of the big focuses has been on who else are the influential people in a court or in a monarchy. And so there has been lots of influence or lots of focus, certainly, on a certain monarch. But since uh, the advent and the rise of gender studies in the 1970s, people, of course, have been looking a lot more at the king's consorts. So queenship studies is now a field in its own in historical studies. And the dynasty as a whole, the whole family, is now a really interesting focus for a lot of research projects in, in all of the European monarchies of the medieval or early modern period. So you can look at the king's siblings, brothers and sisters, but also the king's cousins. Um, they will have powerful circles of their own, particularly in a, in a country like France, where they simply keep producing more and more princes. Um, Great Britain is an interesting parallel because they don't really ever have these parallel lines of royalty. So they, I think, have less to to struggle with. France often found that these people were a bit unmanageable, too powerful, too wealthy. I've told my listeners that a, a way to understand the way that the French royalty was perceived at the time is to imagine the celebrity of the modern British royalty and that add actual political power on top of that. Yeah, well, of course, the, the British royal family had actual political power as well up until the, I would say, maybe middle of the 18th century. But in France, it does continue well on into the Restoration period, um, which your podcast is focusing on. Listeners of the Eccle are, of course, most familiar with uh, Louis XVIII and Charles X, his younger brother, the Comte d'Artois, uh, both of whom spent many years of their life as Monsieur, the younger brother of the King of France. What did this role of Monsieur look like in the late 18th and then early 19th centuries when Louis and Charles were, were filling this role? It was always an undefined position. It wasn't something that that formally existed. Um, so formally, they were created uh, a duke of this or a count of that. So they had an appanage, which was a territory that they could govern themselves. Um, and really, the appanage was where they drew their income from. It was a series of estates, castles, um, tolls, canals. Often um, it, it gave them quite a lot of revenue. But it was also a territorial unit. So going all the way back to the Middle Ages, the appanage was something that was created for younger brothers of kings to give them something uh, sort of to do, really, <laughs> to keep them out of plotting in the court. Um, and the, the most famous of these in the Middle Ages were the Duchy of Orléans, the Duchy of Anjou, um, the Duchy of Burgundy. And these became extremely powerful on their own. So over the course of the period, the monarchs tried to restrict their power more and more and more. And so in a way, they wanted to give them honors rather than power. So the title of monsieur, in a way, began that way in the 16th and early 17th century as a signifier that this is the highest ranking person in the land next to the king himself. And yet it was just a name. So it didn't really come with specific revenue or specific estates or lands. By the time you get to the 1780s or so, uh, you know, the, the Comte de Provence, uh, the young title of Louis XVIII, didn't actually have any feudal power over Provence, uh, et cetera, that, that, it, that those medieval uh, legacies had gone by the wayside by then. Yes, that's right. Um, he did have an appanage. In fact, um, he was the Duke of Anjou and the Duke of Alençon. 
And Provence was simply a name that, as you said, didn't have any feudal ties to the actual um, province of Provence in the Deep South. And one of the things that I tried to speculate on in my book is why exactly he was called Provence, because I couldn't really find anywhere in an actual record from the time around his birth in the 1750s as to why he was actually called that. And the same for his brother, the Count of Artois. It was also very unusual that they were given Count as title, since every other junior prince for the previous several centuries had been Duke of this or Duke of that. And so I, I had a number of speculative ideas, um, but they are really just ideas. I think in part the monarchy of Louis XVI, who took the throne in 1774, was really trying to reach out to its more distant provinces and, and, and in a way centralize. And so Artois and Provence are both at the very kind of extremes, as you will, of France. And, and in relative terms, they are newer provinces. I mean, that's a very relative term. Provence was added to France in the 1480s, and Artois was added only in the 1660s. So I, I suspect that that's part of the answer. Why were they given countships instead of dukedoms? I, I surmise that it's maybe a bit of reverse psychology in saying that the monarchy of France by this point is the grandest monarchy in Europe, or at least that's what they wanted you to think in the 1770s. So we don't need to give our sons lofty titles like Archduke of Austria um, or Prince of Wales. We can simply call them a count. And because they are Bourbons, they are therefore superior to everybody else. That's my idea on it. What about the, the etymology of this particular term, monsieur? Honestly, everyone knows monsieur is the modern one of mister, a generic form of address for a, a French male. How did this term get applied to the king's younger brother? It started as a longer term, and like a lot of ceremonial items in the French monarchy, it was actually borrowed from the church. Um, if you really wanted to honor a high churchman, either a cardinal or a bishop, you would call him Monseigneur, um, which is also my lord. But the slightly shortened version was just Monsieur, my lord. Um, and it, throughout the Middle Ages, had just meant literally that, my lord. But it came to be attached as a way of heightening someone's former, formal title. So in the late 16th century, the Duke of Anjou, Henry III's younger brother, was Monsieur le Duc d'Anjou. In the next generation, the younger brother of Louis XIII was Monsieur le Duc d'Orléans. And over time, that was then just dropped to simply Monsieur. And I think it's the same kind of reasoning. It's, it's this kind of reverse psychology of saying, we have the simplest title, therefore it's the grandest. And some of these were extended to other people as well. The wife of Monsieur is referred to as Madame. The king's son, the Dauphin, is referred to simply as Monseigneur. The first prince of the blood was called Monsieur le Prince, or uh, the, the Prince of Condé, and so on and so on. So it was a way of identifying all the members of the royal family with these very simple um, probably the most famous one and most memorable from the 17th century is Louis XIV's first cousin, the unmarried Anne-Marie Louise, who was known as La Grande Mademoiselle. So how did uh, the Comtes of Provence and Artois, the later future Louis XVIII and Charles X, how did they fit into the political systems of their time as the younger brothers of the king, Louis and the, the Ancien Regime and then Charles and the Restoration? The, the struggle that a younger brother had had with his older brother had often broken out actually into violence. 
So the the earlier younger brothers that I look at in my study, the younger brother of Henry III, the younger brother of Louis XIII, they often went into rebellion because they felt like, as a prince of the blood, it was their right to have a share in government. That was the idea about monarchy that they had inherited through the centuries, is that everyone who's a descendant of the original royal founder, usually the Bourbons like to talk about St. Louis, St. Louis, Louis IX, had a, a right to participate in government. And this clashed with the new idea of absolutism. By the end of the 17th century, Louis XIV's younger brother had kind of been tamed or civilized or given a lot of presents and toys and palaces and chateaus. So he never did go into rebellion. So when we get to the final phase of the 1780s, and we're looking at Provence and Artois, they no longer have specific political roles to play, but they are employed by their brother, the King Louis XVI, kind of as alternative mouthpieces for the monarchy. So, for example, if a new edict has to be announced in the Parliament of Paris, and the king doesn't want to do it himself, he will often give the job to one of his two younger brothers. So really, they're, they're just kind of alternate voice pieces. But it becomes a little bit complicated as the French monarchy careens towards revolution in the late 1780s, because it becomes clear that the Count of Provence has a bit more of a, a liberal agenda and really wants to make speeches and proclamations that have an effect on the changing constitution of France or the desire for change, whereas the Count of Artois very clearly doesn't. And you see this very much in the Assembly of the Notables in 1787, where there are six bureaus that meet from all across France to try to discuss how to solve the, the great financial crisis that's bringing France to its knees. And each of the bureaus has to debate certain things, one of them being how, can a, how would an estate's general form in the coming years? Would each of the estates have to vote separately, i.e. the nobility, the clergy, and the commons, with an equal vote, or would they vote by head? That would mean, therefore, that the commons would have 90% of the vote, of course. Um, and, and so the old aristocracy didn't want that, and the old clergy didn't want that. that. Anyway, that's a long way of getting to the point of saying that the bureau that was headed by the Count of Provence, he actually proposed that they would, in fact, vote by head, whereas the bureau that was uh, headed by all the others, including the Count of Artois, firmly re rebuked this idea. So there were fault lines already, even within the royal family, in, in terms of politics. And Provence, in particular, was quite frustrated, I think, for most of his life, in that he felt he was the one, of the three brothers, he was the reader. He was the one who liked school, liked education, and he felt like he had ideas about the Enlightenment, that he wanted to help reform the monarchy, and he felt he was um, cut off at every turn. There's a, a quote that uh, Louis said, uh, Louis XVIII said later in his life, or allegedly said at any rate, responding to one of uh, his younger brother's Artois schemes, that uh, how else would you have it? He conspired against Louis XVI, he conspired against me, and someday he'll conspire against himself. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> um, I, I didn't know that quote. Um, but he says a lot of these these things in the years, I think, right after the Restoration, when he feels extreme frustration. Um, and knows that his brother now has a really long track record of upsetting the status quo, upsetting the balance. So again, if you look at the hot summer months of 1789, 
Louis XVI is almost paralyzed with indecision. Marie Antoinette and her friends are pushing on one side. Um, the Count of Provence and his friends are pushing on another side. It's either reform or reaction. And Artois is very clearly on the reaction side. He doesn't think that there should be any reforms, that the king shouldn't give in to any of the ideas of the people. And it becomes very clear right after the storming of the Bastille that Artois is very deeply unpopular and is one of the very first princes to leave France. Whereas Provence stays in France and stays very close to the king for the next year or two until he also flees abroad in 1791. Uh, there's a certain amount of karmic justice in the fact that Louis XVIII struggled with the intrigues of uh, Artois when he was king uh, after having himself intrigued against his older brother uh, back in the 1780s. Yeah, I think so. Um, there, there is not a whole lot of evidence of things that Provence did to undermine Louis XVI. I think he mostly just stayed quiet. Um, he had tried to introduce several ideas early on. He'd sent a memorandum here and there to the to the king right right at the beginning of the reign in the 1770s. But Louis XVI made it clear early on that he was the king, he was the master of the family and that he didn't really need the advice of his younger brothers. So I think Provence preferred mostly to just sit on his own. He built a grand library, he read books, he sponsored programs in Paris for museums, for public lectures, for reading circles. He became kind of a salon attendee himself, rather than, I think, directly undermining his, his brother partly because he was always prevented from, from joining the council or, or, or really expressing an opinion. Then when Louis XVIII himself was king, he had a, a more complex relationship, I think, with, with, with his monsieur, his younger brother, who was often in opposition, uh, tacitly at least. But uh, Louis always made a point to include Artois to a certain degree in the decision-making, even if Artois never got everything he wanted. You think that was maybe a reaction to the way that Louis himself had been excluded when uh, when he was the younger brother? Yes, I'm sure there's some of that. I think that he probably felt that he had been excluded a lot in the 1770s and 80s and so didn't want to exclude his younger brother. But I think he was also very pragmatic. I think of any of the Bourbons, he was probably a little bit more realistic and had now had several decades of really having to work with his brother, whether he wanted to or not. Because it was always clear in the 1790s when they were in exile, for example, in Koblenz or in Ham, that foreign powers wanted always to deal with Artois. And so Provence knew that if he wanted to be influential, he had to go, go with his brother or, or act through his brother. And I'm sure it annoyed him quite a lot, but I think he realized that together they could achieve something. This then kind of fell apart as you get further into the period of exile, when Artois moves to Great Britain and is really only becomes the, the voice piece of the monarchy that the British government, for example, will deal with. And Provence, or now we should call him Louis XVIII, is ex more and more isolated from the diplomatic community in the rest of Europe. So I think that when he then is restored and becomes king, I think he makes sure to keep Artois on side simply because he knows that there is a huge uh, power base, a huge upsurge of royalism and conservatism that that Artois can at least voice to him on the council. It certainly seemed like Louis would much rather have Artois 
sort of conspiring inside the government than going into open opposition out in the countryside. Keeping your friends close and your enemies closer, I guess is the old story. And that too goes back quite a long, long time in the, in the history of the monarchy. Um, the, the early 17th century was a period of rebellion after rebellion after rebellion. And it was finally Louis XIV who really kind of came up with or managed, managed to create a situation at Versailles where all the grand nobility, not just his brother and cousin, but all the dukes and princes and cardinals had to live at court so that they wouldn't be in the provinces fomenting rebellions and causing chaos. So I think that this is a little bit of a legacy of that. And Louis XVIII realized that it would just make more sense to have Artois plotting nearby. I, I don't think that there would have been much of a chance of an actual rebellion by Artois against his brother, because I think over the centuries that I looked at of the role of the younger brother, the main thing that they did seem to learn painfully at first was that in the long run, everyone benefits if they all work together as a family. So dynasticism was a very strong point. And I think Provence himself, a couple times in the 1790s, wrote to Louis XVI in, at the height of the French Revolution that even though they may disagree, publicly he would always say the things that would support the king. And I think that's a very strong sense of dynasty that survives even into the Restoration period and well into the 19th century, that the head of the monarch still must be the face of monarchy, at least publicly. Which perhaps accounts for uh, some small share of the uh, animosity toward the Orléans family uh, during and after the, the revolution. Obviously, they had plenty more grievances uh, against the Orléans after Louis' execution and all that, but the Orléans had, had not fallen in line. Yeah, that's precisely right. The, the Orléans branch um, had really pursued its own agenda for most of the 18th century. And there are numerous times where Louis XV and then Louis XVI have to try to bridle the independence of the Orléans branch. But one of the problems is, is that one of the great success stories of a second son is Philippe, the brother of Louis XIV, was able to transform his fairly small appanage into an absolutely enormous one through his own financial savvy. Um, and that's a, a fairly new thing about Philippe, because he used to only just be seen as a fop and a playboy. Um, but actually, uh, the historian Nancy Nichols Barker looked at his finances and discovered that he'd actually done an amazing job of creating a, a fund for the Orléans branch that was independent of the crown. By the time of the Restoration, uh, the, the Duke d'Orléans was the, the richest person in France. Yes. So they had already been the richest person in France, really. The, the Duc de Pontièvre was also one of the richest men in France, another member of the royal family, and he uh, gave his entire fortune to the Orléans branch by the 1770s, 1780s. So already the richest fortune became even richer, and then add to that in uh, at the extinction of the branches of Conti and Condé, they also had as their heirs, by coincidence, the House of Orléans. So certainly, yes, by 1830, they were tremendously wealthy. Around 10,000 BCE, families and tribes of the ancestors to the people of Britain would arrive in the southern part of the island after crossing from land that bridged 
from Europe, the Welsh built houses, communities, kingdoms, and continued to survive through Romans, Saxons, Danes, and Normans. The language and culture influenced by these sources continued to change and thrive, becoming ancient and modern at the same time. Join me as we travel through the history, meeting the kings, queens, nobles, and everyday people that create and grew modern Wales from the seeds of the ancient past. Creo so, and welcome to the Welsh History Podcast. We've talked a little bit about the ways that uh, Provence and Artois both were sort of both in opposition and in support of their older brother. What are some of these earlier uh, messieurs you've, you've researched? Uh, to what degree did they oppose versus support their brother, the king? The first monsieur that I looked at, and really the first one who is given the name and called simply monsieur, is the younger brother of Henry III, who's reigning in the 1570s. Um, and he pursued a much older style of, of um, dynasticism. Ever since the Middle Ages, it had been encouraged for a younger son to go abroad, basically, and find your fortune. So whether that's conquering Jerusalem or Cyprus or some Italian city-state. Um, but he did it instead by trying to first marry the, the Queen of England, Elizabeth I. So he's the one that audiences probably might recognize from the movie Elizabeth I with Kate Blanchett, who she calls affectionately her frog. That marriage didn't happen. He then turned to the Low Countries and decided to champion their independence against Spain, and they were going to call him Prince of the Netherlands. And this is where it comes into conflict, really, with his brother, because Henry III was trying desperately to have a policy of peace with Spain, and now suddenly his younger brother is challenging Spain directly uh, by supporting the Dutch Revolt. So that's that's the first kind of instance. The second one really is much, much more longer and much more uh, introverted. And obviously, we don't have um, time to talk about it for hours tonight. But Louis XIII's younger brother, Gaston, the Duke of Orléans, really felt like he was more of the, the son of Henry IV, the popular king, the populist king. Gaston was friendly, charming, really interested in the poor. And Louis XIII really wasn't. And so Gaston felt that he should really try to shape and mold the government. And every time Louis XIII and, of course, Cardinal Richelieu said, no, there's no role for you here in the government, Gaston did go into rebellion. So there's five or six rebellions throughout the 1630s, some long, some short. He spends over a year in exile in Brussels. And every time there's a negotiation, he comes back together. There's always some kind of staged ceremonial uh, reconciliation where the two brothers will hug and pledge forever that they will be fraternal, that they will love each other like brothers should. And then something else will set Gaston off again and he'll go into another rebellion. One of the key problems here is that because Gaston has royal blood and because he is heir to the throne for so long, he can't be punished, really, and he can't be executed, certainly, because, like I said, he is the heir, so you can't execute the heir. And so, therefore, what Richelieu and Louis XIII are forced to do instead is execute his friends and favorites. And I think, psychologically, he was abused over and over and over again, because any time he got close to someone, they ended up dead. And there are so many executions of people who had supported Gaston in a rebellion, even including some of the highest aristocrats in the land, like the Duke of Montmorency. 
So by the end of his life, Gaston finally comes reconciled. And I think this is where the transformation between rebellion and loyalty really happens, I would say, is in the late years of Gaston's life, which is the late 1640s and into the 1650s. And this is the period of the Fronde where he realizes that as uncle of the new king, Louis XIV, the child king, that the dynasty works better as a whole rather than as individual pieces. So late Gaston doesn't take up rebellion when he could have during the Fronde. And could have made a big difference doing so. Yeah, and I think that's really a, a big turning point of him not overthrowing the government in, in a time when he might have been able to. So then to, to sort of finalize the story, the, the third monsieur of the 17th century is Louis XIV's brother, Philippe. And he never goes into rebellion. He's often angry with his older brother, but he doesn't actually cross the line into physical rebellion or physical violence. He finds other ways to protest. For example, um, he refuses to allow his wife communion when he thinks that she and, he, and his brother Louis are up to no good and plotting behind his back. And it sounds a little bit strange, but that's something that really does bring the public into the, the noticing that something is up at Versailles. And Louis XIV does everything he can to bring his brother back in line and to bring, restore harmony into the family. So there are rebellions, but they happen in, in different ways. Of course, over the, these centuries that you studied, there, there wasn't always a younger brother to the king, although there was a, a surprising amount of the time, perhaps. Mm. Uh, how were things different when there wasn't a monsieur around? Did, did the, the court politics reorient themselves in any way? The great um, period of absence, really, is, and something I haven't mentioned at all so far, is the, the reign of Louis XV. Uh, Louis XV doesn't have any siblings at all. Uh, you might remember... Uh, that he was the very, very last of the great-grandsons of Louis XIV. They had all, all the other babies had died as infants, and the miracle baby that survived then became Louis XV in 1715. And so he has no siblings, and that does, I think, affect politics. Um, he is a very solitary figure. And so, in a sense, that's probably why his cousins, the House of Orléans, are able really to expand their influence politically. They kind of fill that role of the monsieur. Um, and similarly, a, a cousin from a different branch, the Prince of Conti, very much fills the void of an alternative political voice for the monarchy. And he comes directly into clash with the king um, in 1771, when Louis XV tries to rein in the independent power of the parliaments and Conti stands up for them and says that, no, the parliaments need to have their own independent voice um, and their own independent action. And as a result, Louis XV exiles him from court and takes away a lot of his privileges. So, so that, I think, is a sense of, of what happens when there isn't a monsieur, is that someone often steps into the breach, and it's usually the first prince of the blood or, or someone else within the dynasty. One of the things I'm struck by looking at this sort of this history and evolution of the the role of Monsieur, of the king's younger brother, is the idea of it sort of as a court equivalent of the democratic principle of the loyal opposition. Uh, is there anything to that? I, I think so, um, but it's it's hard to pin pin that down specifically. This this is what I was kind of getting at before. I think with the Count of Provence is I do think that he saw that as as his position. And he really wanted to be on the council, 
um, the King's Council in the 1780s when things were getting difficult for the government, but really wasn't ever given the chance. So I think he saw that role as the loyal opposition. Um, and maybe to a lesser extent, Artois thought the same, although I'm, I'm less familiar with the, the thought, the interior thoughts of, of the last monsieur during the restoration. Um, the earlier messieurs, I don't think would have necessarily considered that. I think they thought that that the, the government needed to simply be a reflection of all Bourbon interests, not necessarily a binary of uh, the king versus the loyal opposition. So I think only really the future Louis XVIII might have voiced that that kind of idea. Interesting, because um, certainly the, the king's brother, or perhaps in some cases the king's son, and sort of function as a natural locus for opposition in the court. P people can gather around this this sort of number two figure to uh, gain protection and bolster their alternative views when they disagree with the king or the king's ministers. We we see that actually quite a lot in British history, more than in French history. Um, there's quite often a, an alternative court or an alter alternative uh, political center for the Prince of Wales. Um, and sometimes it turns into real antagonism. The most famous example is George II reigning in the 1720s and his son, Frederick, the Prince of Wales, who had his own court at Leicester House at what's now um, Leicester Square in the center of London. And at one point it was, it was serious animosity between the two. There hasn't really been such a thing in France. There were circles who gathered around Louis XIV's son, the Dauphin, but they never really exercised a whole lot of political influence. I mean, obviously, this was the period of Louis XIV, the most absolute of absolute monarchs. And then I, I think the same can be said for Louis XV's son, the Dauphin, never really coalesced. There's always some kind of party affiliation. So, for example, Louis XV's son, called Louis. I think Louis Ferdinand, sometimes he's referred to. This is Louis XVI's father. He was much more pious than his sort of libertine father. So there's a group of people um, who are surrounding Louis XV's son, the Dauphin, who are much more interested in possibly restoring uh, piety and and religious morality in this Enlightenment era, which some people are seeing as just a little bit too liberal, maybe verging on atheism. So, so there is usually a role that's given to a Dauphin. And then, of course, Louis XVI's Dauphin was always a, a, a small child, so he never had. What is interesting, I guess, is to think forward and, and really enter into the period of the Restoration and think that Louis XVIII did have not only his brother Artois voicing opinions, but also to try to think about what were the opinions and the voices and the political factions of the Duke of Angoulême, the Duke de Berry, the, so Angoulême becoming the future Dauphin, of course, once he's once Charles X becomes king, or even the role of Madame Royale, um, the Duchess of Angoulême, the surviving child of the martyred Louis XVI and the martyred Marie Antoinette. So I think there's there's quite a variety of political viewpoints going on with all of these different, very senior princes and each surely having their own supporters within the court. So having studied this role of Monsieur over the centuries, what's your what's your analysis? What's your take on the role this played in upholding or threatening or changing the, the French monarchy of this period? Well, I think that looking at, the, at it over the long period, one of the things that it did 
not very well, but at least it attempted to, was put a brake on rampant absolutism. So the fact that Louis XIII and Richelieu, who were building this totally absolute state, and then Louis XIV, who kind of brought it to fruition, they at least had some kind of opposition of someone saying, this isn't right. The old aristocracy, of which I, as first prince of the blood, really kind of notionally represent, at least needs to be remembered in terms of the govern of the state. So I wouldn't say that they were successful at doing that, but I think that they slowed it down a bit. And perhaps that prevented any worse form of despotism than you may or may not see Louis XIV's reign as being. It, it's hard to say. But I think overall, the other thing that I concluded but from looking at all these is that they provided a very valuable alternative outlet for patronage. So a lot of people who may not have gotten the top jobs at court because they were not in favor with the king or the queen might instead have gotten favor from the king's brother or the king's sister-in-law. So Madame, I think, also has a very important role there. And so it could be just a noble courtier who needs a job as a chamberlain or a steward or a master of the horse or something like that. But as I learned more and more in, in researching this, I discovered it was also a very valuable source of alternative patronage for the arts and music and theater. And in particular, this is where I found that Philippe d'Orléans, Louis XIV's brother, had quite a lot of influence because as he aged, the Sun King became extremely, let's just say, dull. <laughs> he, he lost really any interest he'd had as a younger man in ballet, theater, opera, grand festivals, grand parties. And in a way, people in the 1690s describe Versailles as becoming rather tomb-like. There's no fun. Whereas his brother Philippe had a separate court at his country chateau of Saint-Cloud on the outskirts of Paris, or at his main residence in the city called the Palais Royal. And here he had opera troops, theater troops, some of the more adventurous painters. So in a sense, a lot of art historians and music historians have said Philippe was in fact much more on the cutting edge of new forms of art in the very early 18th century, which his more traditional conservative older brother just wasn't interested in. So in a way, I think that alternative, that second voice, that alternate voice, kept the French monarchy from simply ossifying and becoming very stultified and conservative and, and almost backwards. Fast forward to the Count of Provence uh, as the younger brother of Louis XVI in the 1770s and 80s. I don't think it's quite as evident, but you do see some of the same patterns in that people who didn't get patronage from the king or the queen were able to look uh, for alternatives from the younger brothers. Um, so they each had their favorite architects, their favorite painters, but in particular, Provence was also very interested in supporting uh, a lot of his favorite scientists and writers and philosophers. He had his own kind of circle of friends who would meet at the Luxembourg Palace, uh, his residence in Paris. So I think he too was this really good alternative source of patronage. And I even came across one really interesting anecdote that was quite specific about porcelain and how for so many decades, the only porcelain factory that was allowed in Paris was Sevres, the royal porcelain manufactory, which was protected by royal monopoly. 
But Provence actually was able to support another one, an alternative one, um, based in Clignancourt, a neighborhood in northwest Paris. And he made, or, or the, comp the factory made its own porcelain, which they sometimes called the porcelain of Monsieur. And he would sometimes put his initials, or they would put his initials, LSX, Louis Stanislas Xavier, on the porcelain. And he even went to court a couple times to defend their right to defy the royal monopoly. So there's a really interesting source there of kind of alternative. It's not political. It's a different kind of cultural. Yeah, a cultural way of, of being different or not quite rebellion, but opposing a, a dictator of culture or a dictator of social that the court of Versailles sometimes was seen as. And of course, listeners of the siècle are all very familiar with the ways in which uh, the Comte d'Artois was often in opposition to, to his brother. Jonathan Spangler, uh, thank you so much for coming on the show and uh, talking about uh, this role of Monsieur that's been so important during the Restoration as well as the preceding centuries. If listeners want to learn more about this topic, uh, you've got a new book out, right? Yes, that's right. Thanks very much. I've really enjoyed talking about this subject, which I've been obsessed with for the last five or six years. And it finally has emerged um, in print. This uh, this book came out in November, so it's fresh off of the presses from Routledge. It's called Monsieur, Second Sons in the Monarchy of France, 1550 to 1800. And pe people can buy it uh, either as a softback or as an ebook. And I'll include uh, links to uh, purchase this book uh, online at thesiecle.com. I appreciate that. Um, I hope that people like it. Um, I, I wrote the book with fun in mind because there are a lot of crazy fun stories that emerge from looking at the four men who uh, were monsieur throughout the years. And um, I, I think it'll add another interesting dimension to people's love of the history of, of France in the 18th and 19th century. Well, uh, Jonathan Spangler, thanks for uh, your insight. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. As a reminder, you can visit thesiecla.com slash supplemental12 for a link to purchase Professor Spangler's book, as well as a full transcript of this episode, along with links and pictures. Before I wrap up, I'd like to take this moment to thank my new patrons who backed the Siecla on Patreon. The most important thing you can do to support the show is to spread the word about it. But if you feel generous, your support at patreon.com slash helps pay for my time and ever-growing research library. Since I last thanked patrons, the following people have signed up at the deputy or deputy level, contributing $1 per month. Marcus, Robert Udiaki, Patrick McDowell, James Lovis, Gregory Sherrod, and Cyril. As always, my apologies for butchering the pronunciations of your names. Some of you have been especially generous and signed up at the senator or senator level, giving $5 per month. The show's new senators are Ross Hensley, Kyle Parker, Pete Vandeveld, August Tierney, Tyler Monroe, Nancy Anderson, Eric Tobel, Francis Van Berkel, and Michael Desmond. Finally, some of you have been incredibly generous and signed up at even higher tiers. James T. is giving at the $10 level, which I call préfet, or prefect. And my biggest thanks go to the ministers in the Siecla's government. Fernando Lopez Ojeda, Alexander Smithers, and Ang. My promise to my patrons is simple. No episode means no patronage. When I've fallen behind and miss a month, I pause donations and you keep your money. 
Thank you again to all you patrons, and to all my listeners, who've made this little hobby of mine so worthwhile. I've got lots of fascinating episodes teed up for the coming months, including a conversation with fellow podcaster Ben Jacobs of the Wittenberg to Westphalia podcast about everyone's favorite mystical skin disease. Stay tuned for Supplemental 13, Scrofula. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, And I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st.